0: So some of these are... I think I'll read them in Larry King's voice. Weatherwise, October is the best month of all. Hashtag, it's my two cents. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Welcome to The Mockingcast, the podcast of Mockingbird Ministries, an organization that exists to connect the Christian faith... With the realities of everyday life. As always and ever, I'm Scott Jones, your host, and we come to you every Friday to discuss, among other things, the contents of our weekly wrap-up posts, Another Week Ends, which is sort of like our Christian cosmopolitan's grace-infused guide to the contents of the world of the interwebs as we see them for the week. In just a few moments, I'll be joined by the usual suspects, David Zall and Sarah Condon, to discuss the contents of Another weekend's. But first... I had the distinct privilege this week of sitting down and talking with Kenneth Woodward, who for over four decades was the religion editor for Newsweek magazine and has just written a book called Getting Religion, Faith, Culture and Politics from the Age of Eisenhower to the Era of Obama. I give you Kenneth Woodward. Ken, welcome to the podcast, and thank you for writing this great book, Getting Religion, Faith, Culture, and Politics from the Age of Eisenhower to the Era of Obama. Now, you start the book with a quote from, of all people, Augustine, all these things I remember and how I learned them I remember. What what was the impetus to write the book for you? Like, why why this book, why now?
1: Well, like most people, Writers, I felt I had good stories to tell, and when you have good stories to tell, you tell them. And if you're a writer, you write them down. Uh, that was certainly one impulse. Um, another one was to was that I was uh, at a stage in my life where I was going to conferences and hearing people talk about events that I had witnessed or that. My colleagues at Newsweek had witnessed and had filed to me, and I'd say to myself, um, nah, that's not the way it was," it, you know. And uh, you get a little irritated. Uh, I can think of one example. of Wheaton College, we had a conference on uh, on Billy Graham, and there's quite a bit in the there's a good fat section on Billy in the in the book. I knew him for knew him for a long time, and I was. Uh, with Grant Wacker, who uh, just did a book on uh, Billy Graham, and that's what it was all about. And I was listening to this stuff, and I was saying, no, 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 no you, go,
2: you don't have that right.
1: And um, so there were experiences like that. And then I had uh, my ideal audience in mind, really um, my own grandchildren and my children. Uh, my children were too young to realize what was going on around them, and of course my grandchildren will think this is you know ancient history. And so I wanted them to not only know what was going on, Uh, but also to realize what a damn good time their uh, grandfather had uh, reporting all of this. And it was a good time.
0: Yeah, you say in the book that you actually had the privilege of sort of reporting on and doing your work in what you describe. As the most volatile period in American religious history, from Eisenha- the Eisenhower administration to today, why is this the the most volatile period that
1: you've lived through? Well, I mean, I don't think there's any comparison unless you until you go back to the middle of the nineteenth century, the eighteen thirties, the eighteen twenties, the eighteen fifties, which saw the uh, second Great Awakening. It saw uh, the rise of, uh, of Mormonism. You saw the Disciples of Christ. Uh, that whole effort to get back to... Uh, both of those were examples of efforts to get back to... Uh, uh... Original Christianity, uh, uh, prim- Christian Primitivism, it was called, and it it, it was a, a very excited period. Nathan Hatch, historian, has talked about that period and, and its relationship to the to the development of American democracy. So that was a very uh, uh, volatile period, uh, and this was too. If you look at not the and I, I describe it not not the uh, if you will the, the decline in, in so many dimensions of mainline Protestantism uh, for different reasons in later uh, Catholicism and in general um, uh, uh, a decline from what was a, an exceptional plateau in the nineteen fifties. If you also look at uh, what I devote several chapters to the uh, uh, things like uh, there were something like three hundred new uh, religious groups uh, that were formed a lot uh, during this period. The rise of the, of the so-called cults, Dr. Moon and many smaller ones, people that did away with themselves, uh, the Kool-Aid and all of that, um, was really quite extraordinary as people, especially the young people, uh, coming out of the drug culture, searched for all sorts of religious experiences in any kind of belief system other than the one they were brought up with. So it was always in reaction. And then there were alternatives to religion, and there are always are alternatives to religion. And I have a chapter in there on how especially the therapeutic culture tried to provide techniques and, and indeed answers and processes that uh, to address the, what normally are considered religious issues. One example that I uh, spent some time in the book, as I wrote two cover stories for Newsweek on it, was the problem of death. We're all going to die. What do we say about that? How do we understand that if we can? There were probably, I, I remember now, something like three times as many books on death and dying in the 1970s through the middle 80s than there had been in uh, the previous, uh, what, 44 decades at least. So there was something going on in the culture, and those are the things that I talk about. Do you
0: think, I mean, some scholars... Think that there's sort of an erosion of a shared civic religion. You know that that maybe in the 50s and 60s, maybe that's the height of it. Where even though there's religious diversity, it's interesting because you write in the book that growing up in Ohio, that religion was how you identified your diversity. Now we think of like identity politics along other lines, but then you say it's religion. Do you think that is there an erosion of a shared civic religious language? And is that, if so, is that is that kind of a good thing, a bad thing? Is is it something that it's worth recovering?
1: Well, I wouldn't quite use the phrase civic religion. The, um, let me try to answer your question this way. In 1970, I think it was, maybe 72, Billy Graham was, again, uh, that figure, was at uh, the height of his influence, and uh, uh, it was a, he was a big pal of Nixon's, and he admired Nixon very much. And so I wrote a cover story on Billy. To introduce it, I took an excerpt from a then-recently published essay by Robert Bella called The American Civil Religion. And what he meant by that, that uh, over and above and beyond specific religious traditions, there was this civic religion that we found in the Lincoln Memorial, that we found in um, Fourth of July, all of these things. Uh, uh, The concept was taken from Rousseau, and... Billy Graham, even though he came from a very specific tradition, namely sort of Southern evangelicalism, um, and uh, even though that's very specific, his ministry was, he created a kind of support system for the civil religion. And uh, it was very clear, and he had had a big uh, event uh, on, um, let's see, where was it, at the Lincoln Memorial, of all places, and Jay Willard Marriott, his buddy, and a Mormon, gave, provided a lot of the money. It was orchestrated out of the White House by Colson and the rest of them. And it was really an anti-Viet, I mean, anti, anti-Vietnam uh, rally. Uh, and uh, Billy really epitomized civil religion at that point. So one has to be careful about how we use that, that term. What we had in the 50s, you, you, maybe that's what you have in mind, uh, to be religious was to be a, an American fighting uh, atheistic communism. We were going to liberate the uh, captive nations of Eastern Europe long before liberation theology came around. We uh, kids in the (laughs) fifties, uh, heard the language of liberation. The point, and this really surprised me when I came across this, the point in the uh, second Eisenhower campaign when the, uh, this would be the late fifties, when the Republican National Committee proclaimed, and it was on the front page of the Times, that uh, that uh, President Eisenhower was not only the President of the United States, but the spiritual leader of our country. And Nobody really objected to that very much. Can you imagine if it had happened under George um, uh, Bush Jr., uh, if they'd said something like that?
0: <laughs> yeah, it would have been greeted, I suppose, very differently.
1: Yes, and certainly was. <laughs> I was. They in... talked about theocracy under him, and that was really ridiculous. Go ahead.
0: I, I was. Uh, I did uh, graduate work after seminary at, at, at Princeton Seminary, and I was in a German for reading class with a bunch of university religion students. and. I was talking to one of them about her dissertation project, which was about kind of Southwestern Catholic piety in the early 20th century. And I asked her if she went to mass anywhere. And she said, those of us who study religion in this department tend not to practice it. You're someone who, though, who's you not only written about religion, uh, you, you seem to not only be a member, but, but also a client. I mean, <laughs> one of these people that, like, what is your own religious, f- you, you talk in the book about growing up in a kind of mixed religious Household in, in in the Midwest. What does your own religious life look and feel like today? And how did it? How does it continue to inform how you tell the old old well, story?
1: Well, I'm not. I I'm not sure that you remember. Me, I also tell the stories of the guys. Bill Bright is the best example. Uh, unctuous little fellow who always wanted to know if I if I had been. Um, he I it would it would come and tell me how he was going to save the world for Jesus Christ <laughs> and. Uh, couldn't they tell me that over lunch? I said, which I make, it made them pay, and I always made them buy me two rounds of Jack Daniels to so let them know where I stood on that subject. <laughs> and,
0: uh, I hope you took that neat.
1: Yeah, he was. They were trying to. So one day I, I fed him some bait, and uh, and I said to him, uh, I said, my my, uh, which is true. My father was saved by Billy Sunday way back in nineteen sixteen, and he finally his eyes. Lit, uh, you know, lit up.
0: Man. You were you had the real pedigree.
1: <laughs> yeah. So he said, and you did you follow in your father's footsteps?
2: Uh, you know, uh, uh, uh,
1: accepting Jesus as your personal Lord and Savior. And I was waiting for somebody of his stripes to ask me that question. And I said, No. I said, I want the Jesus that everybody has. He doesn't understand how offensive to some ears personal Lord and Savior is, it sounds like a personal tailor, uh, or therapist, <laughs> or yoga instructor. <laughs> and uh, uh, I know the language, and I, I have written about it, but it's, that was the whole point. I don't know if he got it.
0: Well, I evangelical that, Protestants aren't always known for their sense of humor.
1: Well, that's true. <laughs> well, listen, let me tell you, same Billy Graham conference, I'm up on the stage with Billy's old sidekick, Leighton Ford. And uh, and some other people and I told that story and um, to total silence. <laughs> and finally, one guy who's at uh, an archivist at Southwestern Baptist something or other, and he or Southeastern, and he says to me, "God, that was a funny story." I said, "Well, why didn't you laugh?" I said, "It was the sound of one." No hands clapping. I mean, it was uh, it was deafening. And Leighton said, "Boy, I'm going to have to give you some theology." I thought, "Well, that would be interesting." Leighton's a very nice guy, and uh, so is Billy's sister. But yeah, um, well, we I can go on in this vein because I tell the story in the book. I'm with Billy Graham, and uh, if you're of evangelical background, you'll appreciate this. So I'm actually out interviewing him for this cover story. So I said, "Well, Billy, what's it?" What's it like to know that you're saved? And he says, yeah, he says oh, it's wonderful. I mean, it's just indescribable. Well, I said, Billy, but what happens if afterwards, you know, um, you crawl in the hay with the organist? And his face flushed a little bit. And, uh, I mean, i used the best, best euphemism I could think of. And he said, well, I just wouldn't get a higher place in heaven. <laughs> and, uh, so, well, it seems uh, maybe it's the worth case. the
0: price. Depending on how good-looking the organist is, it might be worth the price.
1: Anyhow, um, yeah, well, uh, there was a guy, I think it was Haggard or somebody, I used to have on my desk the quote, he got caught in some sexual scandal, but anyhow, he said, well, we, no, we one thing we do know is, despite the fact that we've sinned, we, we're, we're saved. And that just isn't the way I understand that. I'm Catholic. I know Catholics who think they're saved, but boy, are they fooling themselves. But anyhow...
0: Uh, <laughs> I once uh, heard a story of, a, of a, a, an evangelical evangelist who, you know, was working over an airport crowd. He came up on a Franciscan, and he said, have you accepted Jesus as your personal Lord and Savior? And the Franciscan paused, and he was puzzled. And he says, well, no, but I think he's graciously accepted me.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, there's that. And I remember um, seeing Chuck Colson go through changes, and he said, I can't stand it when I hear people. This is, you know, post-prison. Um, I can't stand when I hear people saying, "When I was saved." Well, he was thinking more in a Methodist vein of sanctification and so forth, like this. But these are real sensibilities, and at one time they really defined people, and do to this day. Um, I say somewhere in the book that uh, that uh, back in the fifties, where, where where religions really did had you know created boundaries between people. Um, we were it was a more diverse society than what we have or what we think of as diversity. People often use the word diversity and they mean something else. They mean men and women. Well, the world separated between uh, divided between men and women uh, isn't great diversity. It's an important <laughs> distinction, but uh doesn 't have to be a lot of diversity anyhow, when it 's not so much that you know, you encounter a Hindu or a Muslim or a Buddhist, and, and I wrote a book on world religions uh, taught myself world religions by doing a book. Um, on the you like religion. to
0: learn the hard way, I guess
1: <laughs> well, I wanted to prove myself, see if I could do it and uh, I have a lot of friends who are specialists and they uh, really guided me. Um, Wendy Doniger at the University of Chicago, for example. Um, uh, I spent a year trying to fathom Hinduism. Um, and, uh, it was very difficult because it's quite antithetical to the monotheism that we're used to, you know, in the West and, uh, and on and on and on. And, uh, that was one thing about Billy. Billy traveled to India and China and whatnot. And he never, he always brought the message, right? But he and I suspect he talked mostly to converted Christians there. Um, but he never thought he would learn from any of those um, other religions. I mean, after all, he had the truth and he wasn't going to learn any. Um, and that's another difference between a Protestant, or at least evangelical missionaries, and Catholic missionaries. I uh, think of uh, there was a Benedictine monk who because the spirituality in the, India the, really is monastic, um, and so he created an ashram. Mm, yeah. Uh, and and so he adapted to
0: it. I like Matteo Ricci in the sixteenth century. You know who who became a Confucian
1: literati. I mean, I, I didn't even know anybody does that.
0: You <laughs> I mean? Well, he here. yeah,
1: he was incredible, and, he, and the Jesuits didn't. He, support them in the way they should have either, for that matter. So anyhow, we've wandered a long way around, but because uh, so, it is interesting stuff. Now, I, I, let me say this. I view this book as a uh, social history of the second half of the 20th century that takes religion from the periphery and puts it at the center. So things look different that way. I uh, have a Last chapter on, uh, last two chapters, uh, the first one's on religion and and the Republican Party, and then the one is religion and the Democrats. And I did have some fun with this sort of thing. Um, The the one on the GOP, I don't know if you know this, uh, but the moral majority was created by two Catholics and a Jew. And they selected a guy named Jerry Fowell, who had uh, a lot of uh, good things going for him, a private jet, and, but mainly a huge mailing list. So it wasn't Jerry that named it Moral Majority. These guys did. And it's not him who started it. They did. And that's a little historical correction um, that people ought to know about. And uh, at one time, Fowell really thought he was going to take Graham's place at the center of things. And, uh, Even people from the Christian century and so on went out to uh, a private meeting, secret meeting, to get the cut of his jib. But, of course, he failed miserably. Um, (laughs) Did Jerry uh, fall
0: you by you, Jack Daniels? Is that one of the people that you made?
1: No, we never did. But, you know, uh, and I have this in the book, but he was really a broken man at the end. And... uh, Finally, uh uh we were at a round this round table thing that he did every year of uh, these sort of fundamentalists and sort of evangelicals. And uh Bush Senior was speaking there because he was the nominee for president and you could tell he was very uncomfortable there. <laughs> uh, just get away. But anyhow. Bowell is there and uh, we got to talking and uh Finally, we turned to sports because I said this was the second subject he loved and uh, wanted to. Um, uh, he knew that I uh, graduated from Notre Dame, so he was talking about how he was going to build up the school of sports. And, uh, and I said uh, he's going to do it through baseball because that was his first love. I said it's, it's football. It's got to do it. It's football for you, you know. Well, I tell the story better in the book because I've actually forgotten. He that we did, be, but I I felt like we we had you know two boxers in the ring and they'd fought fifteen rounds at hard and. They fell on each other's shoulders afterwards. <laughs> I, mean, I came to appreciate them in a certain way. I'm old enough to remember wisps of anti-Catholicism, and, and, I, uh, and I could identify with, with the fundamentalists in a lot of ways. And I liked it better than the compromised stuff that you get uh, elsewhere in the uh, Protestant world. So there was an uh, infinity, And I, I learned from Abraham Heschel, who was really my mentor in things Jewish, If you haven't read him, you should.
0: Yeah, Um, a lot of our listeners read Heschel. Uh, Yeah, I I mean, he's
1: well. He he was read more by Christians than by Jews, uh, or as much, anyhow, back when I knew him. But I uh, came to me that what I learned is that people who are deeply rooted in one tradition are much uh, find it much easier to pass over to the point of view of somebody deeply rooted in another tradition. So I could bring my own deep immersion in Catholicism to my work with other religions, and particularly Orthodox Jews. We get along really well. Uh, be, uh, because I grew up with uh, Meatless Fridays and all of that, and they, their halakhic uh, um, observance uh, is reminiscent of that, a little more severe than what I knew as a kid. Boundary maintenance is not a bad thing in religion. Um, the trick is to have boundary maintenance, which is to say not everybody's the same and the differences are important. I always found the differences between religions or between denominations or religious traditions Within Christianity, much more than what they had in common, which would probably make me a bad ecumenist, you know. Uh, <laughs> but I'm not, I don't serve on commissions anyhow. But uh, Martin, Marty and I have been doing things together. I guess that's ecumenical. But the differences that are that are interesting and the nuances here, then, and, and uh, yeah. uh, that I think are really important. So that's what I talk about a little bit, and I think that carries, there's some heavy points in, made in here, but I think they're made in light ways.
0: Yeah, I can't, it's, uh, a, it's, it's a great, I mean, it's a, a very, like, it's a, it's a deep, heavy subject, but you tackle it in a kind of, in the book, in a light-hearted way. I mean, the prose is really, I mean, people could read this on the beach. I mean, it's not a graduate textbook. It It, 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 it feels like an exciting history channel kind of narrative, which is a fun way to, to study the subject matter
1: well i hope there's more accuracy and more depth in some of the history channels. can
0: i want to ask you Um, in closing a couple questions okay because you're not working for newsweek anymore you got no editors over you i just want to ask for some ratings like siskel and ebert okay what do you think of the last couple popes can you rate them like what do you think you know jp benedict francis what do you like? Do you like them all? Or how do you? How do you?
1: Well, I like, yes, I do like them all. And I've learned not to. Uh, there are a lot of, on the left, there are a lot of childish Catholic, liberal Catholics, who just can't get deal with authority, you know, and I'm trying to get over it, for God's sake. Um, the, the uh, yeah, for different reasons. Um, I liked all three of them. And uh, I had Problems with John Paul, too, because he was, he said, Hi, my way or the highway, and he put a lot of weak men in, yes, men in, as bishops, and the Catholic Church, at least in this country, paid for it as a result. Where Benedict should never have gotten, taken that job. Um, did a favor by for the whole church. And he
0: wanted to go re- to Bavaria now. and write books. <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, he, he was—he was. That's what he was. That really is what he was. His last encyclical we read a group at the University of Chicago here it is on the uh, the last things. It's wonderful. It's absolutely wonderful. But if you look at him and say, "I didn't like that," I'm not going to read his encyclical. That's and, and, and it's well written, by the way. This guy uh, Francis. People hear what they want to hear. Unfortunately, um, I take the view that. Uh, and all religions are about one thing, and they're about telling adherents that they are not the way they... Are. Things are not the way they should be, and they are not the way they ought to be. So there has to be mentenoya or turning around, or repentance. okay? And this pope talks about repentance, but all they hear is... The easy stuff, you know? Mercy. Mercy's good, but mercy implies that we're all in the... He says, I'm a sinner. It's the first thing that somebody, when they interviewed him. So he is refreshing. He's not systematic. I defy anybody to, to systematize him. So, yeah, there's... there's and, and he's Brought a whole new tone. I, you know, the more older I get, you mentioned Augustine in the beginning, the Augustinian comes out in me. I never thought it was that much there. But we really like ourselves too much. And I'm, you can tell from the book, I have a good time and I'm optimistic, but but we aren't sinners. And uh, the loss of people going to confession in the Catholic Church is appalling. Um, it's, it's as if I'm okay, you're okay, it's finally triumph. That Joel Osteen is that, you know, image at the horizon that everybody bows to. It's scary. Uh, yeah,
0: and, and Mockingbird, so, one of our theological touchstones is, you know, we say, look, we can kind of get along with anybody inside or outside Christianity, as long as we can all agree on a low anthropology, <laughs> that people are pretty mixed bags on their best days. And I think, you know, you're kind of hitting on that, that that's yeah. uh, that's that's the great truth of the Augustinian Christian tradition.
1: Sure. Absolutely, it it very definitely is. I mean, I was raised on Thomism, and particularly Jacques Maritain, and, and particularly his creative intuition in art and poetry. You will see in my book what English majors were like at Catholic universities in the 50s, when T.S. Eliot reigned, and so did the New Criticism. Very much a part of my intellectual tradition. All that said, it's really very hard. It was a bad thing when I got rid of fi- uh, fish on Friday, if you will. A sociological point, I might want to. And biologically,
0: yeah. we all need a little fish oil in our diets.
1: It probably helped. Well, out. I got more of it. Yeah, I've been converted <laughs> in that respect. <laughs> couldn't hey. do it, I, could, I couldn't do it as a, uh, as a kid. Yeah, and then, uh, anyhow, listen, uh, pay attention to the... Categories I use, I don't, there's not a chapter heading that has Protestant, Catholic, or Jew in it, but the, the categories I do use are, are trying to link religion with culture and politics, namely embedded religion, which is the way most of us get it, and movement religion, which is really very different. Uh, Robert Wood uh, puts it in different terms, but I'm saying the same thing. Entrepreneurial religion for evangelical, not a theological definition, but a <clears throat> working sociological one, and experiential religion, which is, as you know, um, uh, the varieties a religious experience. Uh, William James. I mean, the the kids coming out, coming out of the drug culture. It was, re- you know, they wanted to experience a, themselves as, as part of a sacred cosmos, and there was no spirituality in what they were getting. Uh, I mean, genuine spirituality. I don't mean uh, most of what people. When people talk about spirituality, to me, as the young people, I hear, I don't want to be bothered with other people, and I don't want any obligations on the part of myself. Uh, <laughs> just, but, uh, um, <laughs>
0: Ken, you have interpreted for a lot for like a generation religion in public life for a lot of people? Who do you look to like in a baton passing way? Who who should our listeners read if they want to it, it continue? I mean, to continue in your legacy. Who do you, who do you like?
1: Who who's I don't, the cut of the chip? I don't really find anybody. I mean, you know the the. Crux people do the Catholic thing, and they do, uh, John Allen does it. He does it well, but he does it to death. I couldn't, you know, I have to keep it. uh, The church is always good, any church, at a certain distance. It's like a woman, you know, I get too close. Well, women of a certain age look very good at a distance, but up close, you see the warts and all. Um, <laughs> you can get you can get a little too close sometimes. I don't see it, and and, and I'll tell you why. Um, uh, at the end, I t- a news magazine. I was at, I was we re- we got more information coming in from our bureaus than we could possibly put in the magazine. Mm. I was learning all the time. People don't have that system anymore. They're they're uh, what do they call them uh, aggregators. You know, people writing about religion, some of them, their experience is, uh, only, is limited to the screen in front of them. Yeah. They've never yeah. gone out and met these people. Yeah. You know, the guy like Mark Silk is, is smart in his way. Peter Steinfeld, uh, I was always a great admirer of, uh, but he had to work for the New York Times, and that's, that's a very difficult environment to work in, uh, more so now than then. It, I came along, and it was John Elson at the time, and... Uh, Dick Osling followed it. It was a special time and a special.
0: Did you hang out night. with those guys, even though you're competitors? I mean, did you have cocktails and stuff? Did, were, were those guys your friends, or was it like the late night television that, things?
1: Funny, <laughs> funny. you should ask. Uh, when I went, the religion editor at Time was five years ahead of me at Notre Dame. So we had two Notre Dame guys doing these. It was right during Vatican II. And we both were shaped by this uh, great English professor, Frank O'Malley, uh, who was the most, most influence in my life. Um, and I write about him in the book, so you can see. But the uh, uh, we finally decided we would get together. I had one assistant. He had three. And <laughs> <laughs> it was just that much. And we went out to lunch, and it was like, you know, uh, uh, you know, the... the it was, it was like uh, the War of the Roses, the two sides sitting down together. <laughs> and and they, it had never happened. I mean, yeah, talk about ecumenical meetings. Um, so uh, uh, then later on, we got to know each other. Uh, John moved on. He was a brilliant guy and uh, system managing editor or something. And I got to know these other guys and we would meet at different events. But we were competitors, but we were doing the same thing. I once... I once, uh, in the fall, they said, give us the next six months, which cover stories do you want to propose? All right. They were looking down the field. I mentioned four. Okay. Newsweek did two. But Time did the other two. (laughs) Because we were looking at the world in much the same way. Um, I don't know what to make of it. Martin Marty once quipped, he says I read Newsweek to think what, find out what Catholics think about things, meaning me. And I read uh, Time to find out what evangelical Protestants think, meaning Dick Osling. And he was kind of tweaking us a little bit. But it's, I've often thought about this, and I never talked to Dick about it. I'd like to. But uh, when you say the word church, okay, I know this, especially when I walked in. When you got to remember the first time I went to an Episcopal conference, the age of Bishop Pike was there. And I sat among the women who were I'd never met a bishop who was married. Hmm. It was very novel. So I sat among the women who were watching their men folk up there who were bishops talk about things. And they're knitting back And me. She says, I wish my John would keep quiet, et cetera, et cetera. It was So, <laughs> <laughs> um, so I got to thinking about that. But anyhow, um uh when 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 I know when Dick it comes from up this way in, in uh, Grand Rapids, Calvin, Dutch Calvinist country. You know, and I've uh,
0: never met a graduate of Calvin College that didn't like it, and which always makes me suspicious. You know, like, I'm like, and they, I, like, their eyes glow, glaze over. It was wonderful. It was wonderful. I mean, I think it's a great institution, but I just always worry when no one had a bad experience. <laughs>
1: Well, I I got almost thrown out twice by Ted Hesburgh at Notre Dame, so I guess that qualifies for an ambivalent experience. <laughs> um, uh, no, so so anyhow, when Dick is thinking about church, he's thinking as he ought to think. He's thinking about the congregation. And I'm always thinking like a Catholic. The church is this big, huge thing. It's everywhere, you know. As I said in my in, my, in the book, it's everywhere I wanted to be when I was a kid. Um, and uh, And... Yeah, you know, we just there are certain taken for granted things that you have to think twice about. If, you know, when you're when you're writing, um, because the goal was to try to to if I'm writing about Mormons, I want everybody to understand Mormons. I don't yeah. want to sit there and make fun of Mormons, let's say, or anybody else. But 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 give as much of the feel of what it likes to be to see the world from more through Mormon eyes, for example. Um, and so you. Don't want to be caught, uh, reflectively uh, thinking in a way that, it, and, and that is a hard discipline to learn. When you're writing about, you know, somebody, and you're always writing about somebody else. Yeah, that's a lesson that uh, that I've learned. And uh, again, it's a, it's seeing it from the point of view of the other. And some people did that. Heschel could do it. Uh, nuns used to come to him and ask him, uh, Rabbi, do you think we should, get, you know, get rid of our habits or put <laughs> you
0: I did not know that. Okay, will you play play Dear Abby with me for a moment? Like, since, like, you know, what do you have to lose? Like, give me some advice for two groups of people, okay? Most of the people in our listenership here are congregants, right? But then a big chunk are preachers, you you know, priests, pastors. So what's your advice to the people in the pew uh, to make the most of American religious life right now? And what's your advice to people talking to the flock?
1: Oh, well, I'm not sure if I'm the right person to answer that, because my wife and I's habits are to read during the sermon.
0: Um, <laughs> well, Ken, I'm also a working pastor, so don't come to my church. Just kidding.
1: <laughs> yeah. Just kidding. I'm sorry, but, but they, they didn't take the Vatican II, talked about the ministry of the Word, but they didn't seem to tell these people how to preach. I've actually maybe had three people, four, who are good, and there was one when we moved to Chicago it was spectacular. We try to go to mass every day, uh, if we retire, we can do that. They what do you read what do
0: you read during the sermons? Do you bring books?
1: Well, I would I would usually bring the Bible, you know, or I would just simply pick up the uh, what do you call the lectionary or whatever and read read different uh,
0: You're like a pre- you're like you you it's a Protestant
1: moment. You're like, Well,
0: hey, I'm just gonna read the Bible in service. <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, I mean no, I mean look, I know when they when they don't know anything, when they're lazy and yeah, we had a guy here who even every day of the week he had something fresh to say. And yes, he knew uh, he knew his Bible scholarship, but he not any better than I did. Uh he had an insight that was worth listening to. Yeah. And I almost never hear people like that. I would be more at home in a trappist monastery, you understand? I like silence much better.
0: <laughs> I'm a real extrovert. Oh,
1: so, yeah. So, <laughs> Yeah, so I think my wife might too, too. But uh, she's working with the, still with prison inmates back at Sing Sing, and she's been uh, writing things for them, commentaries on the on the Sunday uh, readings. So she's learned a lot that I she I would used to get try to get her to do, uh, and now she's found a way to do it that is a profit to other people. Anyhow, I've learned to appreciate the three or four guys who did do a good job, and uh, but but over the long haul. Maybe it has something to do with being in New York. Um, I just didn't hear people who had that much to say. Uh, you can hear a cliche coming in religion better than almost any other place except sports, of course. I don't care much for sermons that are about contemporary topics. I can decide for myself those kinds of things so um, yeah I it's it's, uh, it's um, there's got to be some insight and and uh, and the, look it's hard to preach every week if that's what you do much less every day um, it's it's difficult and um, I'm a tough audience so anyhow so yeah that's the way I feel about that
0: Ken, I could talk Listen. to you all day.
1: Well, I could talk all day except that I just come back from Europe and I'm jet-lagged and I've got to go down to Notre Dame and and, uh, and promote my book. Uh, this well,
0: Ken, when you come back on the show, I'll have you back. I mean, next time you have something you want to talk about, uh, I'll have you back on the show uh, because you're great. I mean, you're a fascinating guy to talk with.
1: Well, it's fun, but I've got to learn to shut up sometimes. So, listen, thank you for having me. I'll take you up on that sometime.
0: Thanks, Ken. God be with you. Make up. Make we
2: say like life burning warm. Freedom's life burning warm.
0: All right, back on the mocking cast yet again. David, I was with the force that animated you, PZ, this week. <laughs> oh, yeah? We were in New York. We had a lovely time. Me, he, and Duo Dickinson, which our conversation will be part of the podcast next week. How are things in Virginia?
2: Uh, good. Things are great. Overcast, um, little babies, that's about it.
0: I like it. Over- nothing like uh, Overcast and tiny humans really <laughs> populate a full and flourishing life. Sarah, what's going on in Houston, Texas? Is it still hot? I would imagine it's hot.
3: It's still hot. Yeah, it's still like you know ninety-five degrees by three o'clock in the afternoon. It's still really hot. But what is
0: winter like down there? Seventy. Eh, it's really? Good. It's a good. So it's a it's, trade-off.
3: It's really nice. I mean, if you don't like really, really cold weather, which I do not. Um, it's really nice. Yeah.
0: No, neither of you. Well, all right, David, you're not really. You don't really tweet. You sometimes tweet for Mockingbird, but you really don't. You're not on Twitter, so this is irrelevant to you, I guess. <laughs> Sarah, well,
3: you're you tweet a little bit. I mean, a little bit. It's been a while.
0: So of the three of us, I am probably the one who's most connected to the Twitterverse for the sense of you know for a sense of identity and well-being. Larry King started a new hashtag. Hashtag, it's my two cents. So some of these are, I think I'll read them in Larry King's voice. Weatherwise, October is the best month of all. Hashtag, it's my two cents. (laughs) (laughs) The coffee table episode is one of the great at Seinfeld TV shows. Hashtag, it's my two cents. I would never (laughs) want to sell women's shoes. Hashtag, it's my two cents. One of life's great annoyances is a sore throat. Hashtag, it's my two cents. Why can't I remember my dreams? Hashtag, it's my two cents. <laughs> Does anybody play Simon Says anymore? Hashtag. <laughs> so Howard Stern took to, he thought, this is brilliant. He's, he's revived. He's revi-. So Howard Stern started his own hashtag, m- hashtag my three cents. Why is bird duty white? Hashtag my three cents. <laughs> Has anyone ever motivated you enough to get the lead out of your pants? Hashtag my three cents. Are we still worried about the rainforest or did they fix that? Hashtag my three cents. Will there ever be another song about the Macarena? Hashtag my three cents. And one of my favorites is, why do they say my two cents? Hashtag my three cents. That's funny. That is funny. Yeah. That's so awesome. I, you know, I I did I actually did tweet out under hashtag my three cents. I was in traffic yesterday. I was actually talking with Jeff Holtschlag, who was recently on the show, and I told him that yellow lights suck. So it was like hashtag yellow lights suck. hashtag my three cents. So okay. let's give like our full like seventy five cents here on the week's events for another week ends david what do we have in the highlights of our weekly wrap-up piece which is always chock full of wonderful content
2: We got some good stuff this week, and the first one to highlight is a slightly silly one, but it's made the rounds about a man in England named Nigel Mills uh, being arrested for speeding in his DeLorean at exactly 88 miles per hour. In fact, 89 miles per hour is what he was clocked at, and uh, he swears up and down that he wasn't trying to break the space-time continuum, Uh, but the picture is pretty priceless. This guy bought the Back to the Future car and is driving around the back roads of England uh, at exactly the right speed to, um, you know, go back to 1955. And uh, yeah, that, that's something I think worth mentioning as hashtag it's my three cents but <laughs> <laughs> kind of hashtag neither here nor there, right?
3: You know what I think the takeaway from this is? It was 11 a.m. on a Sunday. He literally, that's his justification. He's like, it's 11 a.m. on a Sunday. The roads were cleared. Like, he should have been at church. This would have never happened to him if he'd just gone to church, you know? Mm, like, that's, yes. my, that's my morality lesson for the guy who drives his DeLorean around.
0: <laughs> how do we, we know he wasn't on his way and late to boot, which is why he was speeding? It's England.
3: I'm guessing he wasn't, but... <clears throat>
2: Yes, Nigel Mills. So Evan. judgy. I know. <laughs> so that's number one, and there's not much to say about it other than to just uh, report it. But have number- you? Do you guys see DeLoreans? Right? Like I saw one this
0: year somewhere. I forget where it was, but I saw a DeLorean. You know, I but, mean, mean they're, they're r- rare. I mean, I don't, I don't know where you get. I mean, you have to buy. I mean, do they make new DeLorean? I mean, no, I no, I'm, no. I'm
2: assuming it's a used DeLorean, right? Yeah, yeah, there's a select amount of DeLoreans out there and they're being, uh, you know, bought up by people who really love, uh, Back to the Future. Basically, uh, alone. That's, that's who the market is. Well, it's there big you go. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's a big market. I just wa- rewatched it w- with my son. The first one. It's a, such a great movie. One of the best uses of the word uh, "butthead" forever, uh, in in sort of immortalized the word "butthead," which is one of my favorite slag offs terms for people. But I, when you hear your six year old say it to you, then like a couple days later, you are like, "Wait, well, we shouldn't have watched Back to the Future." <laughs> I was going to ask if he says it now. <laughs> or he was called. He called his four year old brother that. He's like, "Stop! <laughs> stop! Get out of your butthead!" <laughs> and I thought, to myself well okay that one that one came back to bite me
0: i love when he was wearing like the vest like the kind of the vest he's like look this guy thinks he's gonna drown he's wearing a life preserver yeah. Yeah. <laughs> oh, what, what, do you, what do you want uh, well uh, i'll just uh, give me a tab <laughs> uh, yeah i can give you a tab unless you buy something all right give me a pepsi free look kid if you want a pepsi you're gonna pay for it <laughs> like i love all this like 80s why don't
2: you make like a tree get out of here
0: who president Ronald Reagan? <laughs> Who secretary of state? Doris Day, <laughs> the actor. It's so, a great and then film. we uh, we had Sarah. You uh, pointed us to something, right? That that.
3: Yeah, um, this was a piece sort of about one specific scene in Doctor Who. It's from, uh, open culture. I love Doctor Who a lot. We, we, we watch it kind of on repeat here in the Condon household, but it's a complicated show. It has a pretty high anthropology. So there are moments it just becomes exhaustive. It's sci-fi, which I always enjoy, but this scene was specifically. So the doctor, who's this time traveler, which is. The whole premise of the show um, goes back in time and uh, gets Vincent Van Gogh and then brings him to Paris to this uh, modern day exhibit of his work. And it's such a moving scene. I mean, it's this moment where Van Gogh realizes the massive impact he's had on the art world and on, frankly, on humanity. I mean, everybody knows Van Gogh, regardless of how much or how little you know about art. And it's so powerful from the standpoint of legacy, which is why this article raised it up. The, the thing that struck me about it was, you know, Van Gogh committed suicide, um, about two years, I think, before his, his, um, work became you know, critically acclaimed and that as someone who's lost people to suicide, you know, they, people just, they they never realize what they're going to leave behind. And they, they never realize this world that goes on without them. And they never realize that everything's going to be ultimately okay. And, you know, if they just stuck around, there is this, there's so much love and, um, life and, uh, you know, I don't know. It, it's just, there's so much that people lose. So for me, it was as much about Van Gogh and this incredible legacy he misses as it was just about, you know, the awfulness of mental illness. Uh, but it's a great scene. I really recommend everyone
2: watch it. Great use of that uh, song by Athlete too. That yeah, that song Chances.
0: Yeah, and your perspective on your own story is always so relative and finite from the perspective of vantage. Right? I mean, you think of like if you told Abraham Lincoln's story before he won the presidential election, because before that. It wasn't really like much of a winner at many things, and so you, you kind of you would interpret all the past events, all the past failures differently in light of that election, so even the same failures wind up because of of a different future being reinterpreted so It's why kind of it's very interesting that like Robert Jensen says the thing about the law is. The law makes your future bound by your past, but the promise of the gospel makes your past determined by the future. It actually can renew things that have gone by in a way that, like, this is why the gospel is always, the promise of it is always liberative. And why the law mm-hmm. generally feels constrictive or, or has a finality to it?
2: Yeah, there, there's. Uh, if you listen to my my dad's most recent podcast, which is kind of a wild one, uh, he talks a lot about assisted suicide, and obviously suicide, as Sarah points out, is something that is, you know, uh, really at its root is mental illness and all sorts of other uh, cl- a closing off of perspectives. But uh, assisted suicide, in his mind, at least, uh, the the most compelling argument against it is just the the lack of humility uh the Mm -hmm. the the kind of certainty that things will never get better the uh before god and that that is to him what is so troublesome about it and um again you you were uh you're 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 closing off all you're actually acting as though you know what's going to happen when you don't and no one does
3: yeah you know actually the strange thing i found very comforting about this is the article links to this note from van gogh's brother that um that he wrote him as as I think it was when Van Gogh uh was institutionalized. I think he was in a psychiatric hospital and um it's just beautiful. It's beautiful and encouraging and supportive. And um, if, if you're, you're one of those people, and most people are, who've lost a family member to suicide or who worry about a friend who may have walked that line before, um, it's comforting in that this has always been a part of human narrative. We've always worried about one another and loved one another through these moments. So anyway, mm-hmm. it, it's a nice thing.
2: Oh, yesterday. Oh, my troubles seem so far away now. I need a place to hide
0: away. Oh I, I believe in yesterday. Suddenly people I have
2: to make on to the clowns. I yes, I mean <laughs> Talk about a shift uh, in uh, content here, but uh, there was an obituary in The Economist of an English uh, vicar, an English clown priest, Roly Bain. Now, I'd never heard of Roly Bain before, but I'm sure if I dug around, uh, we, we know people who know people. Um, but this is a—it's a really delightful, delightful obituary, and would that we all would have such an obituary. It's about this this guy who was a a, a clergyman in the Church of England and then also a clown. And um, they—I'll read you a couple of lines from it. Uh, he'd had enough of the top-heavy pomposity at theological college uh, when some of his fellow students seemed fixated on a high preferment. In glittering robes, he instead had preached on Jesus as a clown. A clown was a truth-teller, living by different rules, as he did when, on ten occasions, he's talking about Roly, not uh, Jesus, he greeted a presiding bishop with a merry splat of custard pie. But he also dared, uh, like all clowns, to expose his vulnerability publicly and completely. This put him in a long line of holy f- uh, holy fools. Uh, when he clowned around, hiding his skill at Pratt Falls and slapstick behind wide-eyed alarm, his audience seemed to open up to God, releasing pent-up emotions and becoming like children in faith, hope, and love. And this is, uh, you know, the way that humor is used, I think, in the pulpit and at church. Uh, it's not as great when it is... Uh, perf- Totally performative and attracting attention to the person who's funny, uh, but it what it does do is uh, when it's used well, is it lowers people's defences, and uh, clearly the Economist being an English publication and or British publication and. Um, there, there's this. They, they talk about the tension between like a button up Anglicanism, and the institution there, and this guy coming in and just uh, not taking uh, himself seriously at all, and in fact, really spreading joy in a uh, unexpected way. My favorite part is that uh, also is that he was part funded by a group called Faith and Foolishness, which supports clown priests. So, Sarah, you need to get in on that. Maybe you can get 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 some funding here for us. Um, Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> I love the description. He
3: opened himself up to ridicule, giving only in return, giving only innocence, love and joy. Um, it reminded me of this meeting that I watched my husband go through in his ministry that was awful. And everyone there, you know, the, everyone was really happy to be there except for five people who were livid. And he was you know, he's the, my husband is the patient, uh, non yelling, uh, member of our marriage. And so he just sort of stood there and took it like these five angry people. And I remember at one point the woman yelled at him that he was pitiful and he was like, well, you know, like, I don't know. I just, for me, I kept thinking of that when I was reading this clown, like there's this thing that priests do when they're at their best, uh, you know, the best version of priesthood is that, um, there's just a lot of um opening oneself up to ridicule and then and then only giving innocence and joy and and love in return so um yeah i thought this was incredible i do think though here the real hero is his wife i kept wanting to know her name because it said that he had a family because i cannot imagine being married to this guy (laughs) (laughs) that sounds nuts
2: you know was he a clown all the time
3: (laughs) i will that and like you know the fact that they got a paycheck Like in every month that was signed by what the president of the Faith and Foolishness Club? Like what? Like that's you know what I mean? Like that? I'm like, who's his wife? Like I want to hear more about her. So, what does your husband
2: do for a a living? Oh, he's a he's a holy fool. Yeah,
3: (laughs) (laughs) professionally LLC. I'm sure his name is. uh,
0: That's not an exclusive club of women that could say that um, (laughs) about their spouses. (laughs) Mm. So, why did you? Would you, you grow up afraid of clowns?
3: Yes.
2: Yeah, I mean I read I read Stephen King's it and I, I actually somehow saw it on television too and oh my that's enough to scar anyone forever.
3: Yeah. Are kids they're, afraid
2: of clowns and he's never
3: like there he I think some kids are just afraid of clowns. Are yeah, you are you afraid of clowns, Scott?
2: I don't think
0: so. I, I, I mean I didn't like love them, but I don't I don't remember any traumatic clown experiences. But Andrew Stott, I don't think he's any relation to John Stott, the great English clergyman, but he's an English professor who specializes in clowning culture. Uh, says that the medieval fool was continually reminding us of our mortality, our animal nature, of how unreasonable and ridiculous and petty we can be. Um, He talks about how King Lear's fool wanders around reminding everyone that they're not as clever as they think they are while talking in contorted doublespeak to undermine our sense of what we think is going on. They've, clowns have always been associated with danger and fear because they push logic up to its breaking point. They push our understanding to the limits of reason, and they do this through joking, but also through ridicule. Mm. And he, he asked, and this, this is an article from The Guardian. They say that a clown's mask may be a happy image, but it still works to hide true emotions. And while the real man behind the paint could be a smiley and cheery chap. He could also be hungover and resent having to prance about. The disguise is innately unnerving, as is the perpetual smile. And they talk about how there's this uncanny horror trope where like a decomposing face, it, it, it looks like a human face, but it's off. And he talks about how clowns in the Middle Ages, if they didn't make the king laugh, they could pay a steep price. Some gestures were mutilated to make them smile all the time. So they would, have, they would cut the muscles that enabled the mouth to frown. So that's just the darker side of the clown. I thought I would just.
3: (laughs) Thanks, thanks for that. um, There you go.
0: Yeah, think of what I do to myself.
3: Hope you guys aren't eating while you're listening to this. Yeah,
0: so remember that, everybody. Next time you take your kid to the circus.
3: That's right,
0: (laughs) clown college watch out I wonder though just developmentally if, if there is something like that for kids though because you're learning to read human expressions a certain way and it's funny because they do these oh, yeah, stu- yeah. studies with dogs that dogs read human emotion the same way humans do like they start at the upper left of your face and move to the lower right wolves can't do that and chimps can't do it but dogs can do it Because so I wonder how much it, it freaks kids out that they can't properly read a clown's face because of the makeup and the fixtures yeah. so, I don't know somebody uh, somebody can. Do a study on that or something. You know, by the way, I just want to tell you guys, there's also a study done that – this and this, this research money will now be freed up and you could study this. There's a study – somebody at Rutgers proved that the five-second rule was not true. That if you dropped food on the floor for five seconds, uh, it still could get bacteria on it. And watermelon oh is the food that catches the most. I'm glad somebody funded that. I am actually applying –
3: of course, it's watermelon. It's like a sponge. I, I'm currently
0: applying for a grant to study uh, if a watched pot boils any slower.
3: <laughs> <laughs>
2: Just going to bang
0: out all of this, um colloquial yeah. things. I love it. And let's okay. talk, we've, we've talked uh, Van Gogh and, and Back to the Future and Clowning, and now let's talk poetry and the way life is and ought to be.
2: Sure, there's a wonderful article in um, The Atlantic this week, uh, I think it's, it's actually in the magazine, it's in the October issue, why some people hate poetry. Um, and uh, the subtitle is, it's the site and source of disappointed hope. Um now you know. Usually, when you mention poetry, people's eyes sort of glaze over. But um, this this is, is about a book by Ben Lerner, which I think sounds like a really fascinating book. Um, and basically, he traces how poetry uh, went from being something that's just descriptive of poems. What what is poetry? Well, it's it's a bunch of poems, and it's it's the corpus of poems. That's what a poetry is. To this, almost this like. A, Ineffable ideal. When we talk about poetry in motion, uh, you know, I think Shelley was the one who says that poetry is connate with the origin of man. A poet participates in the eternal, the infinite, and the one, and the poetry comprises every creative activity of human nature, including the arts, politics, and science. I guess Shelley even said that there's poetry in the doctrines of Jesus Christ, as if Christianity were just, excuse me, one enormous poem. So you had, uh, the romantics took, uh, poetry, which was, uh, up until then, maybe one medium among many, and kind of made it into this very lofty ideal. It was, um, it was, it was a metaphor for, for, for everything that was creative and life enhancing in life. And so from that point onward, uh, poems themselves just became a bad expression of poetry. So no matter what kind of poetry you wrote, whether it was an incredible poem or a terrible poem, it still wasn't um, poetry with a capital P. Uh, So therefore, poetry is the site and source of disappointed hope. Um, He writes, Lerner writes, that poetry is a word for a kind of value no particular poem can realize. The value of persons, the value of a human activity beyond the labor leisure divide, a value before or beyond price. You know, what we're talking about here is they they elevated poetry to this Eternal law, and um, therefore any any attempt at it was it was going to be disappointing. Uh, you had the the inevitable gap between the actual poem, which was uh, just a series of words, and what what Lerner calls the virtual poem, which we can imagine as being perfect because it remains pure potential. And you know this this reminded me of something uh, we posted recently from that book, How to Be Miserable: Forty Strategies You Already Use. And that if you really want to be miserable in life, you'll really to people's potential, not their reality, so that uh, you know, no matter who you are, you're always you're always just uh, wanting. Uh, you're relating to your wife as the person you think she could be, or that she should be. That life is one parade of shoulds, and therefore you're just. A and those shoulds cost
0: some clowns um, the muscles in their face yeah. that allow them to frown. <laughs> <laughs>
2: Absolutely. Yeah, I mean, I can't help it. By the way, when we. Just before we go deeper into poetry, people in in our generation—I speak for the three of us—had no chance to ever consider clowns in a good in a good way. You had the, nothing but you had the Joker constantly um, in right. front of your face in every right. in just an increasingly gruesome fashion. And as a, you know, uh, as we've seen in the recent Batman movies, you had it. You had Killer Clowns from Outer Space. You had Shakes the Clown. I mean, this was one of these things. like What about Shrek, the Crazy you know, Clown in Seinfeld? People, uh, kids became. The crazy clown in Seinfeld, of course, you know, uh, was uh, the the uh, Joe DiVola, yeah, crazy Joe DiVola, right? Joe, crazy Joe D'Avola. and uh, and was Kramer, of course, yes, systems? Krusty, yeah, Krusty, yeah, that's right. It was one of these things like where Shrek, yeah. like Shrek, where kids never actually knew the fairy tales that were being parodied in Shrek; they just knew the parodies, and right. so we never had like a positive experience. We of clowns, can't appreciate you know, the poetry. We can't, can't appreciate However,
0: clowns. It's amazing. It's, it's amazing that we're alive.
2: <laughs> cultural philistines, yeah, yeah, we're all not- of us. <laughs> so late. Anyway, what do you guys? Do you guys like poetry?
3: Uh, yeah. I mean, I used to read a lot more of it than I do now. Just like I used to do a lot of cultural things I don't do since I had children. Um. You know, the th- the thing, it's funny that we're talking about things that our generation is like unable to appreciate because there was this quote from Lerner and I felt like you could totally substitute um, poetry for church. Where he says, if you are an adult foolish enough to tell another adult that you are still a poet, he writes, they will often describe for you their falling away from poetry. I wrote it in high school. I dabbled in college. Almost never do they write it now. <laughs> like as soon as I read that, I was like, I yeah. used to go to church in high school and then I went a little bit in college, but you know, and they like apologize for it and um and actually it was so fascinating to me that he writes it and, and I think it's it's an You know, we always, as clergy, when we have those awkward conversations with people in airports or on airplanes uh, where they ask us what we do for a living, we tell them and then they begin to apologize for never going to church. Um, He has this (laughs) interesting take on it that um, people, when people do this justifying thing about how they used to be in poetry, he says that what they're actually saying is that um, uh, they they used to be a part of this way of communicating and they just, they want to sort of justify themselves in that, but they're not anymore. And I thought that, you know, what an interesting idea of, of maybe even the way people talk about church is like, well, I used to be a part of this part of culture, you know, that you're a part of now, but I'm not anymore. So anyway, I loved that piece just, you know, of the, yeah.
2: They, don't they use the word antinomian in there? Yes.
3: Yeah. Yeah. The, the yeah. Poetry po- is now antinomian. Uh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Pretty brilliant.
0: I want to read, Scott, what about I want you? to read to you. You're a Poet William Carlos Williams' poem The Red Wheelbarrow. So much depends upon Hit it. a red wheelbarrow, glazed with rainwater beside the white chickens. There it is. But William, it's funny because Williams thought that uh, he hated T.S. Eliot and people like James Joyce, and he thought that, you know, people that wrote poems like The Wasteland with line numbers, I mean, what what, what has line numbers? The Bible, Shakespeare, things like that, that he thought it was pretentious. He thought that, look, uh, poetry, language should be simple. He hated simile, like he, you know, which Eliot loved. And so he thought that that this was how poetry should be it should describe like naked experience and that this is uh, uh, this is sort of a huge like f you to what people now would call me like the paleo modernist the people that were modern writers and poets but were trying to like reach back with that kind of renaissance spirit but i want to read another poem if i can may i read another
3: poem Please. Yeah, you can, and then I'm gonna read one. I love one. it. It's poetry. I'm gonna hour. put up with this.
0: So, <laughs> deal, so this deal is, with it. This is kind of gentlemen. like the, <laughs> po- the kind of poems that Will, Williams just like they made him want to throw up. It's called Mister Elliot's Sunday Morning Service. Polyphilo progenitive, the sapient sutlers of the Lord drift across the window panes. In the beginning was the word. In the beginning was the word. Superfetation of Tahen, and at the mensual turn of time, produced a nervit origin a painter of the umbrian school designed upon a gesso ground the nimbus of the baptized god the wilderness is cracked and brown but through the water pale and thin still shine the unoffending feet and there above the painter set the father and the paraclete the sa- sable presbyters approach the avenue of penitence the young are red and pustular clutching peaculative pence under the penitential gates, sustained by staring seraphim, where the souls of the devout burn invisible and dim. Along the garden wall, the bees with hairy bellies pass between the staminate and pistolate, blessed office of the epicene. Sweeney shifts from ham to ham, stirring the water in his bath. The masters of the subtle schools are controversial. Man. Now, what's really interesting is there's a chicken joke in there, like ta hen. Yeah, in the beginning was the word super mutation. Super mutation, I think, is when something <laughs> spontaneously reproduces of, of ta hen, of being. So he's talking about the reproductive life of the Trinity, and ta hen is meant to sound like chicken, right? Uh, but there's all these things we have the sex life of the Trinity, the, the baptism of Christ. All this. And then at the end, you have Han- Sweeney, who is a guy we know, Elliot, he trained Elliot, had a box. And so you're picturing this guy. That saw the earth in his bathtub, you know, moving back and forth, washing probably after he was training all day. And Eliot, contrary to what Williams thinks, is just as concerned with the everyday. So all these, simil- you know, it's funny because things like being subtle and controversial and polymath for Eliot are normally good, but he's saying no. These church theologians and they're, they're, they are they are completely useless if if they can't connect the baptism of God incarnate to this simple. A boxing trainer in a Boston bath, like that's where the gap is. So, I me mean, Elliot was sort of like studying all this classical stuff, not to just be highfalutin, but to get a concrete reality just as concrete as that wheelbarrow by the chicken, and even throws in a head chicken joke. So, there you go. That's my poems, Sarah. On to you.
3: Yeah, so I'm just gonna read a little bit of one uh, by James Fenton. That is my all time <laughs> favorite poem, and actually. You know, when I was reading uh, this piece about poetry, I kept thinking, yeah, they should have stuck to the way they used to do it, but I'm realizing that all the poetry I really love is the antinomian poetry, where people just did whatever they wanted, and a lot of it was deeply romantic. So, with that in mind, this is James Fenton, part of his poem called In Paris With You. That I love um, Don't talk to me of love I've had an earful And I get tearful When I've downed a drink or two I'm one of your talking wounded I'm a hostage I'm a wounded, But I'm in Paris with you Yes, I'm angry at the way I've been bamboozled And resentful at the mess I've been through I admit I'm on the rebound And I don't care where we are bound I'm in Paris with you That's beautiful It's a great poem,
2: mm-hmm. it's a great I re- poem. That's that's. That's great, and I, I think it is very. It's very difficult to write sort of plain spoken poetry. And Eliot was, as he got older, I think he he was writing more and more plain spoken. It, it needed less of the line. Um, the line delineations as he as he, as they things like the wasteland needed. The poem I, would, I was going to read is the one that I found out this week that David Dark, uh, who we interviewed a while ago, um, that it was a great uh, inspiration to him when he was writing that book. Life's too short not to be religious. It's by Milosh, Milosz, um, my favorite poet, um, other than Emily Dickinson, uh, and it's called Religion Comes, and it's from a fragment from his treatise on theology. Wow. Religion comes from our pity for humans. They are too weak to live without divine protection, too weak to listen to the screeching noise of the turning of infernal wheels. Who among us would accept a universe in which there was not one voice of compassion, pity, understanding? To be human is to be completely alien amid the galaxies, which is sufficient reason for erecting, together with others, the temples of an unimaginable mercy. Mm. That's, that's awesome. a yeah. I mean, that, that's worth writing books about. I think uh, he's got so much to share with us. Thanks again to you and guys. May I'm so grateful to
0: your you. lives be filled with poetry this week, everyone. Whether it's the formal or the antinomian kind.
2: <laughs> Thanks, Scott. Thanks.
0: Thanks for listening to the Mockingcast. As always, you can find any of the content we reference on our website mbird dot com. If you like what you heard, please pass it on to a friend, or maybe even shoot over to iTunes and give us a rating or even write a review, hopefully a positive one. We exist because of the generosity, enthusiasm, and support of you, our listeners and readers. And for that, we are eternally grateful. Thanks for listening and have a great weekend. And we'll see you
2: next week.